Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Maybe we could start by, uh, or are you going to sweep us through the Exodus story? Well, yeah, I really thought I'd just kind of broadly talk about the Exodus plagues narrative um, rather than look at um, particular passages in depth Mm. uh, more, try to look at the the sweep of the story and to do that um, reading it through the lens of climate crisis, but probably more important reading climate crisis through the lens of the, of the plagues narrative is kind of what I'm uh, interested in doing. This is a, piece I've been working with uh, groups on for the last 18 months or so. It's funny that it um, hasn't gotten uh, this, this uh, correlation uh, hasn't been made as much as it seems like it should have under the circumstances. So hmm. yeah, that's, that's what I thought. If that seems like something your folk oh, yeah, stuck th- into. This is going to be fun. Um, one of the questions I often start with, Chad, is um, when do you first remember encountering the scriptures? Now, I know that um, Walter Wink described your work on the Gospel of Mark as being as significant as um, Bart's work on, on Romans. Uh, the way that you've brought um, a- activism and scholarship together, as you uh, like to say, um, both in the streets, in the sanctuary and in the seminary, has been exceptional, but where did that journey with the scriptures start for you? How, how does Ched Myers become Ched Myers? Well, I was not raised in the church, um, in any church. My dad was a lapsed Catholic and my mom was a lapsed Protestant. So I didn't have any exposure really to, to the scripture until uh, I um, came to the faith. In fact, it's a funny story. Uh, I was an exchange student in my last year of high school and I lived in Norway for a year and while I was gone my sister got caught up in the Jesus movement of the this is the early 1970s and she was swept up in Calvary Chapel you would know about that Um, and uh, so of course the first thing she dutifully did was send her wayward brother a Bible in the mail and I was so excited to get a package from home and so disappointed to open it up and find a Bible (laughs) And, uh, and so that I, I was, I found myself in Western Norway in the middle of the winter and that's, that's long and that's dark and that's cold. And I had a, a 12 hour train trip, uh, to take, um, and, uh, I'd brought James Minchner's novel, the, the Drifters, which is about a thousand pages. And, uh, by, by hour seven, I'd, I'd finished the novel. And the only other thing I had to read was this doggone Bible and, um, <laughs> And I, I sort of picked it up. I said, okay, where, do you, where, where does one start? And I looked at the table of contents and saw that there was a New Testament and it was shorter. So I started there and started in with Matthew 1, right? The, the uh, genealogy. And I got about halfway through the, through the uh, begats and said, bugger this, uh, closed the book and started reading, started reading Minchner again. Um, <clears throat> so that was my first uh, 
experience with with the Bible. But a year later, at age 18, I found myself um, at the altar of a church and got got another free Bible. And um, this time I went to my first Bible study as a member of this little church. And, uh, and they were talking about the loaves and fishes story. And, you know, no matter where one is theologically, you just can't kill that story. It's just too good of a story. And so I was, I was very excited. Um, I was particularly excited. You know, I was, I was 18. I, I, I remember the first Earth Day. I was a young uh, eager environmentalist, and uh, I was really excited about the fact that um, they were picking up the broken pieces, uh, you know, and I thought, all right, this is recycling, this is great, and, <laughs> and, and the young Bible study leader looked at me rather sternly and said, no, no, here's the spiritual meaning of this passage, uh, so I got slapped down, but that stayed with me, oh, wow, here's, here are texts that are really different, and they're really compelling, so I found myself increasingly attracted first to the Gospels um, and then slowly to the rest of, of the scripture. And um, uh, <clears throat> as, a, as a university student I studying philosophy, I asked my philosophy pre professor if I could do my senior thesis on the Apostle Paul. And, and he just, he didn't know what to make of this at a secular university. This was the most ridiculous thing he'd ever heard. So he sent me to the local <laughs> seminary to, to find a someone to read this and uh, and that was my first uh, uh, baptism into biblical scholarship uh, so wow. it, it, it was for for me it was a time of um, you know you you would know lots of people who are raised in the church and have this maybe sense of alienation from whatever toxic practices or culture that that they were exposed to particularly in fundamentalist churches but i had the opposite problem i i had no exposure to the church and mm. i frankly found a lot of toxicity in secular culture and so uh for me uh discovering these these old wise stories was uh, was a real adventure and a delight and i um fortunately was weaned off of fundamentalist approaches to scripture pretty early on and had some great teachers, both Jewish and Christian. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and so um, for me, uh, the scripture as, as a young, vocationally as a young activist, uh, studying scripture was sort of an avocational counterpoint to trying to make sense out of the work that I was doing uh, in social movements. And, uh, and it really has been that way for the last 40, 45 years or so. I, it just constantly um, feels like uh, you know these are these are pools of wisdom that you can dive into and not not reach the bottom of. Um, yeah. But it, but it does take a certain amount of uh, persistence and um, imagination uh, and discipline to um, keep keep things connected um, and and not allow scripture to orbit in some other world, but in fact to be in conversation with our world. So. Wow. Chet, my first introduction to Calvary Chapel was uh, on the other side of an M16 where I was arrested by a US military police officer um, uh, in response to our protest, the Talisman Sabre, and he shared that um, he was a part of Calvary Chapel while he waited for back backup for over an hour and a half. And um, we got talking about why we were praying 
um, and mentioning the name of um, uh, people who had died in the Iraq war um, while he was arriving. I'm so aware that those kind of circles often lead people to reading of scripture that prop the world up as it is. Um, your scholarship has insisted that um, these texts actually turn the world upside down. What was that journey? Who, who were the particular people that um, gave you permission with these intuitions you had, whether it was with that first Loaves and Fishes text or um, continuing as you're in the movement? Who are the people who you met and you're like, oh, I'm on the right track here. I'm not completely crazy. Well, uh, in connection with your story, I'm, I'm just grateful that um, that same Calvary Chapel where I actually went forward because my sister dragged me to that church and that's where I went forward and got my Bible. I'm so glad they gave me a Bible and not an M16. Right. Um, <laughs> but of course, um, uh, the way that the scripture is interpreted uh, becomes a battlefield all in and of itself, which one pretty quickly discovers if one is um, trying to look at word and world synoptically or Bible and newspaper. Mm. Uh, so I, um, you know, uh, next month is going to be the 50th anniversary of the passing of one of the great radical Christians in American history, a man by the name of Clarence Jordan. Mm. Uh, he was the founder of Koinonia Farms. Mm. He, yeah. he, was, he was building interracial, interracial uh, uh, interracial farm in rural Georgia in the at the height of the Cold War. In case you thought you and I had it hard, uh, and <clears throat> and he was doing that work courageously. You know, the, the Klan was burning crosses on his property, and his the farm was being boycotted. Um, but Clarence was uh, actually a student of the Greek New Testament um, uh, as a radical Baptist, and. <clears throat> is probably best known and perhaps a few Australians know him as the author of the cotton patch, cotton patch. version yeah. of, of the uh, new Testament where he tries to uh, uh, recontextualize um, the gospels and the epistles in the language of um, uh, Jim Crow, the Jim Crow American South. Uh, and, and so he was, you know, he was a, he was a Bible scholar, but he, he was actually a justice farmer and um, it was, it was reading his work and, and he had this way of sort of um, hermeneut hermeneutically cutting through the bullshit, you know, for example, mm. uh, uh, when he's quoting uh, Jesus in Luke 16, one of the famous adages of, of Luke's Jesus, um, you, uh, you can't serve God and mammon, you know, Clarence's commentary was shortened to the point. Clarence says, he, he doesn't say you shouldn't. He says you can't. Uh, and, you sound like you're from Americas when you pronounce it. Like that. Yeah, you know, and 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 it was it was sort of um, just straightforward um, attempts to allow the edge of scripture to to show that really uh, ignited my imagination. Um, you know, it's it's not. It's not people like me who says the Bible um, should turn the world upside down. It's actually the characters of the Bible who say that. Mm. Uh, and so when, wherever and whenever um, we see the scripture being put at the service of 
the dominant culture, particularly if that's an oppressive dominant culture, we know that something is awry, but we also know that that's a very old story as well. So from the very beginning, even of the scriptural tradition itself, there, um, there's been a battle over how God's word is uh, intersects with uh, the world of the poor, the world of the rich, um, the world of violence, the world of human renewal and justice. So, uh, so people like Clarence, and particularly uh, Clarence, one of Clarence's disciples, uh, who be became one of my mentors, who in turn introduced me to the radical Catholic uh, left, as it was called in the U.S., um, mm. and the Catholic worker movement, people who you know well and uh, know by name. Um, it, was, it was sitting in Bible study with Philip Berrigan, uh, wow. the, fir the first American priest to be arrested for civil disobedience in the history of the country in his anti-war protests of 1967. Uh, and his wife, Elizabeth McAllister, a radical mm -hmm. uh, ex-nun, um, two fierce Irish-American Catholic radicals um, <laughs> who, uh, who were not shy about um, speaking truth to power and doing jail time as a result, but who also were extremely disciplined in their practices of scripture. So every Sunday we'd sit around the scripture and, and discuss it. Uh, I also had the, I think the thing that really cooked my noodle was 1976, uh, which was the bicentennial year for the United States. And uh, wow. so there, there was all kinds of official nonsense being broadcast. Um, <clears throat> I had the, um, great privilege of hearing Daniel Berrigan, Philip's more famous yeah. brother, Jesuit priest, um, do a Bible study um, at a local Catholic parish in the book of Revelation. Uh, he had made a, a point that year of going around the country trying to, uh, as William Stringfellow famously said, not read the Bible Americanly, but to try to read America biblically. Yeah. And so he was, he was reading America as Babylon in the bicentennial year. And that, that tends to uh, divide the wheat from the, the chaff pretty quickly. Uh, but, but, but for me, my head was just exploding because I was hearing these old texts just absolutely um, saturated with, with meaning and implications. Um, so it was, it was the example of, of folks who took to heart Karl Barth's famous exhortation to um, look at the world with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, um, that uh, I think um, kept me at it as, as a student um, of scripture. And so I apprenticed myself to both academic study of the Bible, and one can learn a lot from that, from the original languages and so on, but also from populist readings of the Bible. Uh, and, and those two are I would say equally important in terms of forming how I how I look at things. And Chad, I don't think I've been to a Catholic work around the world where there isn't a copy of Binding the Strong Man um, in in tatters somewhere in the community. But I've also heard you quoted in AME churches or at um, Trinity United Church of Christ on the south side of Chicago. But also, like Rob Bell w would quote you. Uh, you have been a conduit of this. Um, uh, radical Christian tradition of, of uh, um, pacifism and uh, Christian anarchism um, and the, the whole 
stream that's often the minority report in the Catholic worker tradition of uh, Peter Moran's vision of um, uh, back to the land and farming and um, how, how do you sustain yourself while speaking in such diverse places to that vision? Like how do you stay true to um, those mentors and those people where there's, uh, um, there's so much to help us read Americanly or Australianly out there? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was very fortunate, Jared, to um, in my 20s, to really be around some great mentors and elders. Um, and it was, you know, that is such an important part of the social ecology of, of movement building is to feel like you are under someone's spiritual cover, um, not in, not spiritual authority in the authoritarian fashion, but sure. that here's somebody who knows more than I do and has done more than I have. And um, <clears throat> I'm going to apprentice myself to, to them and their, their movement. Um, when, when one does that genuinely, I think one never, um, imagines that, that oneself is too big of a thing. You're just kind of part of a tradition. You're, you're part yeah. of, um, transmitting a, a tradition. And, um, I think one of the, um, uh, another really important mentor of mine, uh, and of ours was, uh, Vincent Harding and yeah. <clears throat> Vincent Harding, one of the great historians of the civil rights movement, uh, the Southern uh, freedom movement in this in in the United States, um, and also a formidable theologian um, in his own right. Uh, and um, as someone who was very active, you know, a speechwriter for Dr. King and um, uh, an organizer in the South, um, he he became the foremost chronicler of that movement. And he was always so eager, both in print and in person, to. Um, gather circles of people and to exhort us to learn the history of the movement. And of course, mm -hmm. the movement in the U.S. means the Southern freedom struggle. But of course, more broadly, that means social movements across time and space. And, um, and that, that discipline uh, as, a, as a kind of um, complement to the reading of Scripture is, has, has been extremely fruitful. Uh, for me so that you can you can walk into a variety of venues and you can have a conversation about social movements and the history of social movements uh, and you can have a conversation about scripture and you can have a conversation about scripture scripture itself as the mm. chronicles of social movements and you can have yeah. a conversation within social movements about why the deep wisdom of scripture is important for sustaining um, the work of justice so you you, you uh, have the opportunity to apprentice to um, these elders and then you you have this sacred this sense of sacred duty simply to to carry on that work and um and you you take that conversation wherever it will be welcome and of course um those are those are relatively thin um thin audiences um on the margins um <clears throat> but one finds that on the margins of every church tradition there are people eager to have that conversation and even on the art uh, on the margins of non-church traditions and i know some of your listenership uh mm. would identify with that you know there are people who like me um are sort of intrigued with this uh these these old wise stories of scripture why they're so persistent why why they're 
why they're used in a toxic manner and yet also used in a liberate, liberatory manner, what's going on there. Uh, and, and you try to have those conversations. That said, like you, Jared, uh, I have a long list of places I've been invited to speak once. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I love you, Chad. And I'm so thankful for the way that you've been one of those mentors for me. And I think, um, I, I mean, I'm about to invite you to help us do just that as we open up um, uh, this Exodus narrative. Uh, but I think what you just said is one of the probably the most challenging things for Australians because we don't do any of that well. You, you know, from your time of living in, in intentional radical communities in Australia that, uh, you know, tall poppy syndrome often means that we're not very good at actually acknowledging the elders. And those of us who ha have been learning and sitting at the feet of um, the traditional custodians of uh, this land and know how important eldership is to um, Aboriginal cultures in Australia, that uh, it's it's so huge a thing for for us to learn. And one of the biggest challenges of Vincent Harding, to me, um, and this is uh, prior to Love Makes a Way starting, was he and you know that slow, deliberate way that he always spoke um, uh, was uh, Jared. This is not an inspiration. It is a responsibility for you to continue, and um, that that haunts me. That that troubles me. Mm. Um, so will you continue to trouble us, Chad? Uh, and um, I promise this isn't one of the gigs that you only get to do once. How's that? <laughs> um, well, um, we're already in a in a world of trouble, aren't we? Um, it's yeah. no secret, no secret to your listenership that um, we are uh, hurtling toward um, a civilizational and ecological end game under mm. the realities of climate catastrophe. And, and so let me just quickly try to connect a couple of dots. First of all, let me say that, uh, you know, there's, there's a great uh, saturation of the airwaves with um, uh, climate analysis and a good deal of climate porn, as they call the, the, mm. the catastrophic writing it's it's difficult to to find and maintain one's equilibrium in the midst of a lot of this very sobering and, and troubling news for for us here um it, it's it's deeply existential um almost two years ago uh, the thomas fire came through our valley and our county uh and the two counties um in our uh, part of the state of california and it was, at least to that date, California's largest wildfire in the year that followed. It was eclipsed in succession by two more of the largest historic wildfires. But, mm -hmm. but the Thomas Fire scorched 80% of our watershed, 80% of our watershed. I remember yeah. awakening at 3 a.m. Uh, one night and seeing a 360-degree ring of fire around our little town. Um, <clears throat> it was truly an apocalyptic moment. Um, and in the aftermath of this, you know, when all the officials are, are scrambling for sound bites, then Governor Jerry Brown talked about this as the new normal. Mm. Uh, that, that has now, I think, become political speak for, for climate crisis. Um, <clears throat> and of course, in the US and, and Australia and elsewhere, uh, Southeast Asia, um, 
we've seen this string of superstorms and yeah. uh, deluges and catastrophic fires. Um, your your listenership will be very familiar with the the infamous hockey stick curve of uh, the data mm-hmm. of uh, of all sorts of ecological um, catastrophes from um, mass species, extinction. Yeah. yeah, mass extinction, uh, ozone depletion, um, uh, sea sea warming, ocean warming. Um, and it's also true that there's a hockey stick curve for um, climactic aridity in places like the American West, where um, the aridity factors have increased uh, as one of the primary factors of uh, climate crisis. And when you get aridity, such as it was in our area, of 1% in the middle of winter, um, you know you're in trouble. Um, So... You know, for us, it's not normal. We, you know, we understand that wildfires and the resulting uh, mudslides after it in, in our bioregion these these are these are normal. But the 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 superheated, um, super fast moving fire, which all of the people who um, fought that fire said they'd never seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's not warm. Uh, that, that's not normal. Mm. Um, um, extreme weather surely of all the data um, the the invisible things like the melting of the ice caps um, of all the data coming at us it would seem that extreme weather would would get our attention Mm. Um, and extreme weather is on a hockey stick curve it's it's uh, part of that same rising line and yet still at least in the US the media will not name unequivocally that climate crisis is the cause of extreme weather. Um, And worse, officials speak of it as if it were being something done to us rather than by us. So so this is where I think we need to turn from the newspaper or from the internet to the Bible to try to get deeper wisdom. So um, we've got all these apocalyptic scenarios and we're using already biblical language now. Uh, so there is a, a literary genre in the Bible known as apocalyptic, and that gets us back to the, the book of Revelation. Hmm. Um, the, the Greek word apocalypsis means to unveil or to unmask, and book of Revelation um, talks about the unmasking of empire in the first century of the common era. These were early Christians trying to make sense of their marginalization by and domination under the Roman Empire. Mm. Um, And one of the great um, symbols of the book of Revelation we find is the horsemen, the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6, right? You have the the white horse signifying the conquering power of the empire that had consigned the writer of that book, John, to, um, to jail. You have the um, red horse of militarism, and closely followed by the black horse of economic stratification and oppression. And the fourth horse is the green horse of death. Hmm. Uh, now, these are, these are symbols that are quite evocative. But um, it, it struck me that one of those, one of, one of the images in, in – uh, that fourth horseman um, 
has a phrase in Revelation 6, verse 8, of death coming by pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. So all this mayhem was being done by the, the rich and the powerful and the militaristic, except also there was this natural um, phenomenon mm. of dying. And it's a vision of nature going toxic, becoming a destroyer rather than a nurturer of life. Mm. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago. Um, and the, the idea of the biosphere warming up and cooking us to death was something the ancients could only have seen through a glass darkly. And yet it has become a defining feature of our own moment. Yeah. So um, it's this last horseman that piqued my curiosity um, trying to see through this veil, even when it's painful and depressing. So that in turn led me to the book of Exodus. Now book of Exodus gets a lot of airplay as the great archetypal story of a slave people walking out of empire, revolting um, in a general strike and going into the wilderness and um, uh, imagining with God's help a, a new society of mutual aid and, and equity. Um, but what we don't often talk about uh, in modern interpretations of Exodus is the fact that um, this ancient tale of divine judgment on empire is actually largely articulated through what we might call the revolt of nature. Mm. Um, so it, here's even as you're saying this, Chad, I'm so aware that um, often it's, it's not in circles of people of faith that I hear this imagery called upon, but um, I, I think of uh, um Slavoj Žižek's book uh, just a few years ago where the um, four horsemen were a major motif that he was drawing on. Um, I think of Naomi Klein just even this last week talking about um, uh, uh, Greta, the 16-year-old activist, as a, a prophet um, uh, during this apocalypse that we're living through. Um, but before you open that up, why do you think it's that larger culture knows how to relate archetypally or mm. sometimes you use the term cartoon um that there, there is a and not in a sense that it's comical but in the sense that it is archetypal um mm. why is it that people of faith are so um often reticent to uh explore this imaginative field of these stories while larger culture is actually i think a james lovelock and his revenge of yeah. gaia and doing the yeah. same with um uh you know, Greek mythology, yet when it comes to people of faith, we're, we're often reticent to do just that, to um, read what we're living through. Yeah. Well, I think you have this twin phenomenon in, in Western culture where you've got churches who have the, fam the contempt of familiarity with, with the scriptures. Um, they, mm. they think we think we know what these texts say, when in fact, the, 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 um, the feral... Um, symbolism of these texts has been locked down by very one-dimensional um, doctrinaire theological propositions uh, mm. and so, so so many church folks aren't actually encouraged to see the wild symbolism that um, inhabits scripture uh, so so we're sort of poverty-stricken in the glut of bad Bible reading. Whereas mm. in, in the secular culture in general, there's just 
poverty um, in terms of trying to make sense of these awful mega realities and we don't have the language for it. And so uh, a lot of folks in secular culture are turning to the arts, they're turning to the poets, they're yeah. turning to singers. And some of them are also turning to the scripture, which is all about art and poetry and song and symbolism. Uh, so it's a good time maybe to try to meet in the middle yeah. um, <clears throat> and uh, sit down around these kinds of texts. And one of the things that immediately comes alive is this story of, um, you know, how does Israel, these, this powerless slave group, get out of Egypt? Now, so much of the narrative uh, gets uh, uh, preoccupied with the, sh the, the back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh. Mm. But in fact, um, uh, what really happens is um, uh, it, it's this mismatch, right? It's, it's the, the greatest empire of antiquity versus these um, half-assed organized uh, slave folk. Um, in fact, at one point, uh, Moses talks about, um, <clears throat> uh, or Exodus talks about the Israelites refusing to listen to Moses' call to liberation because, quote, their broken spirit um, because of the cruel slavery they're under. Their spirits are broken. Um, mm. That's Exodus 6, 9. Uh, they can't mobilize because they're just too beat down. Uh, so it's this huge mismatch, and that impasse is broken by a divine initiative. Creator now instructs the creation itself to rise up against empire on behalf of these beleaguered slaves. And this begins... Mm the series of plagues, which winds through the next 10 chapters like a labyrinth, slowly escalating the stakes. Um, really, the, the, the narrative architecture of, this, uh, of the Exodus plagues is a triangle of contestation, right? You, ha you have, obviously, the Hebrew slaves as the protagonists. Uh, their agent, Moses, keeps insisting, free our people. And then Pharaoh... His, and his managers are the antagonists, obviously. The cynical ruler continually hardens his heart and reneges on, agreement, uh, on his agreements. But the third character in this drama is nature herself, yeah. mobilized by God to counterbalance these otherwise vastly unequal power relations. So the, 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 the real story of uh, the Exodus plagues is nature versus empire. Um, the plagues are described in Hebrew as negef, blows to Pharaoh's regime, but also signs in Hebrew, off, of its depending, of its impending uh, demise. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so uh, the Nile is filled with blood, um, just as the Reed Sea will be filled with dead e Egyptians, says our mutual friend Laurel Dykstra. She mm. talks about um, this. A narrative as a literary assault on the entire Egyptian cosmology, a judgment on the gods of Egypt, right? The frog, the sun, the cobra, the cow, and the Nile, they, these were all deities in the Egyptian pantheon. And yet each is defeated by the power of nature at the behest of Yahweh. So the first, the first sign of protest is the Nile. And I think just to pause there just a second, Chad, it's, I mean, that's amazing and is missed by so many. Um, for, for those whom this is a, a Disney movie or a Sunday school story, the fact that these different um, 
signs, symbols, uh, act, actually resent, represent different uh, powers that actually govern people's lives is completely missed on, on so many. So it, it becomes uh, just lost. But I mean, today it, it might be uh, what multinational corporations or, um, uh, you know, uh, the market or media or there, there are similar powers that govern our lives that mean that the, um, like I'm, I'm struck by um, our friend uh, Wes Howard Brooks, who's been so influenced by your scholarship and how he talks about scripture as the, a, a contest between empire and creation. And here we have symbols of uh, these powers that mean that we can't live in right relationship. And I just don't want that lost on our, our listeners. Yeah, and, and, and you know, moderns look at these ancient tales and um, they either literalize them into some kind of magic show or, <laughs> or they dismiss them as so much spectacle um, or, you know, special effects like it's some kind of Spielberg film. Uh, and, and what they're missing, of course, is that, as you say, this is a war of myths between huh. uh, empire and creator and creator's people. Um, so the case in point is is the first plague, the, the, the famously the Nile turning to blood. Now, uh, there's been a number of interesting attempts to explain this phenomenon scientifically. Um, some people think that rising temperatures cause the Nile to slow and then shrink, making it hospitable to toxic freshwater algae. Mm. A bacteria known as burgundy blood algae has been documented around the globe. It multiplies drastically in slow-moving water, and then it dies and leaves a red stain. And then it's further speculated that an ecological cascade of consequences would have ensued. Any blight on the water would have also ki killed fish, fish that would have caused the frogs to leave the river. Uh, the lack of frogs would have allowed the insect populations to increase while rotting reptili reptilian corpses would have attracted significantly more insects to the area. Biting flies in the region could have turned could in turn have transmitted livestock diseases, which could have sparked an epizootic epidemic in animals and in humans. In other words, plagues one, two, three, four, five, and six. Mm. Now, I, I'm not a fan of trying to um, find scientific proofs for symbolic biblical stories. Sure. Um, that said, I was at first bemused and then intrigued when I stumbled in 2008 across an article in a prestigious medical journal. The abstract caught my attention. Said the authors, we propose that the root cause of the Exodus plagues. Now, mind you, this is in the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine. Um, the root cause of the Exodus plagues would have been climate warming along the ancient Mediterranean littoral, including the coast of Egypt, born and anthropod caused diseases. In other words, the author's unifying causative theory for the plagues was climate change. Hmm. Now, that, um, that kind of rang a bell. <laughs> and... Um, I, and I don't want to minimize the, the powerful symbolics of the narrative. My, my favorite moment is um, in one of the many times where Pharaoh's heart hardens and he, and he re refuses to let the people go after um, promising he would. Um, <clears throat> God instructs Moses and Aaron to take a handful of soot from the kiln mm. and throw it in the air in the face of Pharaoh. 
Wow. And it shall become fine dust all over the land of Egypt and cause festering boils on human and animals throughout the whole land. Now, given the fact that a kiln was the work site for Hebrew slave brick That's right. Yeah. Throwing ashes at Pharaoh represents a defiant repudiation of the slave system and ashes spreading over the empire like acid rain suggests mm. that oppression ultimately makes everybody sick. Wow. So there, there's sort of in these, in these plagues, there's sort of a mix of the proto-ecological and the, the wildly symbolically political mm -hmm. um, to uh, – to form this escalating struggle. Um, so negotiations between Moses and Pharaoh harden, fiery, uh, fiery hail increases pressure on the ruling class from above. Um, the, the king finally admits he, we have a problem, but quickly retrenches his position. So then locusts, so that would be more from below, a traditional pestilence turned into a superstorm, ratchets up the pressure. Squeezed by heaven and earth, Pharaoh still refuses to yield, typical of autocrats then and now. <laughs> number, number 45, um, not uh, an exception. And then darkness falls. And this is this foreboding harbinger of the finale to come. Uh, and the rhetoric that describes this penultimate of the ten plagues is evocative. We're told in Exodus 10, people could not see one another, and for three days they could not move because they couldn't see. And I thought, wow, now there's a trope for collective blindness and huh. denial and, parala and paralysis that is so fitting not only to the culture of empire, but increasingly the culture of climate crisis. Mm. So, of course, this sparks the final showdown, which is captured in a sharp exchange between a threatening Pharaoh and Moses. Um, Pharaoh says, you better get the hell out of here. Moses says, I don't mind if I do. Uh, this is what we've been asking the whole time. Um, <clears throat> but, of course, the escape requires one last plague, which is, we all know, because it lies at the heart of the great Passover liturgy a mm. persistent ancient tradition that helps keep this ama amazing story alive and subversive. Mm. Um, this stark lesson of the Passover is the longest and deadliest of the plagues episode. Um, the powerful only respond when their own children are threatened, right? So mm. Pharaoh finally gives in, although sometimes they don't even respond then. Um, so out go the, um, the Hebrews and they're famously escorted into the wilderness as escaped slaves. Um, <clears throat> and they're escorted by a pillar of fire. And then they walk through water to escape the pursuing Egyptian militia, right? These mm. archetypal primal symbols, yeah. fire and water. Creation has conspired in liberation, setting a theme that then recurs throughout our scriptures. So, Say that again, Chad. That was gold. I mean, that's the tweetable moment right there. So that, <laughs> that, that's, creation has conspired. Yeah, with, 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 um, uh, with the creator and with the people in, in the work of liberation. And, and that is yeah. that precisely, that conspiracy is the foundation of all the great scripture stories throughout the rest of our tradition. So the question you and I have to ask is, why is the narrative of nature versus empire still so marginal in our churches? 
Yeah. Wow. Yep. Um, now, of course, <clears throat> Exodus is a difficult story for at least two reasons. Um, one is this revolt of nature had a lot of victims, both human and non-human, and mm. so does climate change. Mm. Um, and that's not something to celebrate. Um, the, the issue of ethical responsibility here is thorny, of course, in the biblical narrative because it's coming from a monotheistic worldview. God is sort of orchestrating all of this. Um, <clears throat> but, of course, um, that's simplistic. Uh, the story is predicated on a deep prophetic assumption that it's imperial hubris that is bringing destruction upon itself. So yeah. it's really judgment, not uh, sort of just God throwing a tantrum. Nature's revolt is generated by the groan of oppression and it is, is extended only because of the duplicity of Pharaoh's administration. Yeah. And um, I mean, I'm struck by in other passages, um, like in Hosea, where uh, the, the prophets almost talk about the unmaking of creation um, due to human action. And that um, as um, my biblical Hebrew uh, teacher from seminary, David Cohen, uh, used to say that um, God's judgment is our consequences in full. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's something still that I, I don't think we have a very good theological appreciation of in our churches. We still literalize it overly and personalize it overly. Um, but we, in fact, we don't need to take the plague tales literally to see how they in fact articulate historical reality mythically, mm. namely sure. how over-exploitation of human and natural resources leads to ecological collapse. Jared Diamond, who, mm. I, first, uh, who I first met diving off the uh, uh, coast of Queensland when he no was way. doing research. Yeah, when, when he was doing research for uh, his, his book on, uh, on collapse, um, he, ex he explores how irrigation agriculture in the Fertile Crescent over two millennia resulted in silt and alkaline degradation that doomed history's first empires in Mesopotamia, not to mention deforestation, being a major factor that we see reflected in biblical prophetic protest. Um, <clears throat> nature does rebel against imperial presumption to rule over it, sometimes slowly, sometimes dramatically, but always inevitably. Mm. So as you yourself noted a few minutes ago, even the theologically uncommitted can speak of this in terms of judgment. James Lovelock's understanding of climate crisis yeah. as the revenge of Gaia. So mm. it's this resonance between the diagnosis of ancient scripture and modern science that is stunning and sobering, but also I think very animating. It gives us a sense that We've actually been here before, mm. um, and oppressed people know this reality way better than privileged folk. And so let's yeah. draw on this wisdom uh, in order to um, organize and educate um, and, and tell the truth, as the uh, Extinction Rebellion folks like to put it. We've yeah. got to tell the truth. Yeah, Chet, I'm so struck that... Um, in your reading of this text, you take us from uh, a, a magical, either in defense or in dismissal of the magical, into an integrated uh, approach where um, we're dealing with worldviews where uh, uh, politics, ecology, um, 
human psychology, the stories we tell can't be separated and what it is to step into texts such as this one and be able to read our own moment instead of get caught in those games of um, dismissal or defense around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that it's, it's powerful. But, but here's the second caution. Um, and this is something our friend Laurel Dykstra um, mm. made a big deal of almost 20 years ago. Now um, Exodus isn't about us. Uh-huh. It's, it's about oppressed people. Yeah. Um, and the way that they are, um, their groans are heard by God and God mobilizes um, the cosmos in a common protest against empire. People like us, you know, we're largely still beneficiaries of, of empire, even of the system that's killing us. And, um, and, and this, this is important um, because um, when we speak of the Anthropocene, right, today, that's a little bit of an obfuscating term. It, it seems to suggest that humanity in general has caused climate change. Mm. But it's not humanity in general. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, um, it's historic and persistent systemic inequality. Australian Aborigines or Mexican farm workers or Filipino contract laborers, um, they haven't caused climate crisis. It's the affluent global minority that has both driven and profited from the globalization of industrial uh, capitalism, which has led some to propose that a better rubric uh, than Anthropocene is Plantationocene to describe our era, because the exploited, alienated, and often transported labor used by the slave plantation system in the 19th century was in fact the model and the motor for the carbon-greedy machine-based factory system of the 20th century. and or to, to quote Naomi Klein, who you were mentioning a minute ago, the mm. racial corollary being um, the reality of an economic order built on white supremacy is the whispered subtext of our entire response to the climate crisis. Yeah, that's right. And so, Chet, I'm not sure if you've seen, she's got a new book uh, that's just coming out on fire where she um, makes explicit that what we're seeing globally at the moment is what uh, Europe was facing before it went and colonized other places. And now um, the the limits, ecological limits that were reached in Europe because of in yep. living as empire, uh, yep. where they had to go and colonize to continue the um, exploitation of, of the right. land, that, um, you know, this moment of history is where we're butting up against there is no more places left to colonize. And mm-hmm. we have to face this white supremacy a colonial project head on um, or it will do us all in. Right. So that brings us back to, to where we are trying to um, look extreme weather in the face hmm. and understand it as a message. Uh, you can say it's a message from Gaia. You can say it's a message from God, but the question is, are we getting the message. message. Huh. Hurricane Katrina in 2005 was a wake-up call for both global warming and racialized social disparity as chronicled by Michael Dyson's Come Hell or High Water. But mm. the hearts of our political and industrial pharaohs were too hard to change. Superstorm Sandy in 2012 was a wake-up call for rising oceans as analyzed mm. by Adam Sobel's Storm Surge. The pharaoh's hearts were somewhat moved. After all this time, it was the Washington-New York corridor that was impacted, but soon hardened again. And Hurricanes Maria and Irma and the Thomas Fire in 2017 
seem to have elicited unprecedented sclerosis of the heart from our new pharaoh in chief, in chief, who continues to blame California for its wildfires and infamously lobbed paper towels to residents in Puerto Rico so they could get on with mopping up after the hurricane. So what the Exodus story tells us that sheer science can't is precisely that the ecological crisis is indivisibly also a social crisis, uh, a crisis of class, a, a crisis of production. Um, <clears throat> and um, how many billion dollar weather events, yeah. as the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration now calls them, um, are we going to go through, through before we uh, start listening? There were no less than $30 billion weather events in 2017 and 2018. Wow. The harbingers keep coming. The hearts of our rulers keep growing colder and our own hearts as well as we keep driving and consuming like there's no tomorrow, thus increasing the chances that there won't be. So the choice, it seems to me, is um, look at all of this from the perspective of the underclass, mm. um, the, the slaves in Egypt, um, the <clears throat> low wage workers and the indigenous people uh, today. And for people of conscience, you know, our choice is pretty stark. It's yeah. ignominy or it's exodus. Either we take refuge in denial or we embrace a more radical discipleship. And Exodus invites us to do precisely that, to get up, right? The whole story of Exodus is getting up and defecting from empire. So what does that mean for us today to be part of a movement of defection? Um, you, you and I both are gonna be involved in the climate strike um, on Friday. And uh, this is a time, a great time, even though I guess it'll be passed by the time that this podcast is aired, it's a time for everybody to show up and to show yeah. up in, in new and imaginative ways, um, bringing the, the deepest wisdom that we have to the starkest crisis that we've ever faced. Wow. Chad, um, Tim Flannery, who in Australia has been a very important voice the last 20 years, I think he was the 2007 Australian of the Year, um, uh, meteorologist whose um, uh, books and um, work has made a huge impact here. He had an article just this past week where he says, um, I've failed and um, uh, rhetoric isn't enough. What we need is rebellion. And um, uh, we've spoken together on a number of occasions. Um, and last time we were hanging out, I asked him, what do you expect from people of faith? And his response was, and he said it in this order, um, uh, love your neighbor and love God. That's what we need Christians to do. I was struck by that answer. It's not what I thought he was uh, going to say. Um, his response, what does that look like practically? What, what does it look like to, to love our neighbor and, and love God at this moment, particularly when so many of us um, aren't baking bricks? We're, um, you know, under the cover of, Pharaoh's roof and very comfortable um, uh, in that reality. W what does it look like in ways that aren't as silly as, um, you know, the whole straw reality or simply um, uh, 
you know, a class of people driving Priuses or changing our light bulbs or even things like um, I gave up flying for six years um, mm. uh, and uh, it was our ecological crisis that caused a huge um, political shift for me because I realised that it, it wasn't, you know, um, communes being the change we want to see that's going to change the world when um, nation states are actually a, a buffer against multinational corporations and that they're much more powerful entities. What, what does it look like for us yeah. to love our neighbour and um, to love God? You know, um, uh, the, the most succinct uh, ultimatum I've run across uh, comes from deep within the old fundamentalist Christian tradition. It's the old Baptist adage, turn or burn, right? Um, our, our tradition has this notion that um, our job, what we're being summoned to do is to turn around. For the slaves in Egypt, it was to turn around from their brick kilns and head into the wilderness. Uh, for us, it's to turn our economy around from a carbon-based um, addiction uh, toward renewables and a more viable and sustainable future. Uh, of all the Christian metaphors, um, this one, the, the discourse of repentance, uh, mm. tra trades at a very low rate of exchange in yep. our culture because it's been yeah. so, as you well know, it's been um, so relentlessly privatized and personalized and quite frankly, trivialized yeah. um, by the conservative Trivialized church. to traumatize. Like yeah, to, to, to traumatize, good. Um, but by the conservative church and then just kind of dismissed by mm. the liberal church and secular culture. Yeah. Um, I think it's the most important um, core message we have. We've got to turn or we're going to burn. Uh, and, and what does turning mean? What does the language of repentance mean? It's actually a struggle in the scripture to turn everything around, to turn mm. the people around, to turn the nation around, to turn civilization around and head in a completely different direction than the one that we are um, walking lockstep toward our destruction is. Um, now, <clears throat> what... What is it? What what does turning around mean? Well, I think it means. Um, I think for those of us coming out of our tradition, we want to preserve the unity of the meaningfulness of both the personal and political. Mm. No step is too small, but given the scope of the crisis, no step is too large. Um, no individual step, no collective step is either too small or too large. Um, paralysis won't get us there, right? You can't be neutral on a moving uh, train. So we've got to move. We've got to start taking first steps, whether that's to stop flying, to convert to um, biodiesel or electric, uh, electric vehicle, or to stop driving, um, to uh, recycle. All of those steps are meaningful, but they have to also be collectivized, and they've got to be systemic. Um, when it comes to the political, I, I like the demands of the Extinction Rebellion movement. I also like the name of that movement. It's a very new movement, um, birthed out of the UK, as was the transition movement um, yeah. 15 years ago. Um, their three demands are 
that governments tell the truth about the ecological crises and not just governments, but corporations and scientists. Secondly, uh, a World War II scale climate mobilization for yeah. zero emissions and drawdown by 2025. Now, I would, I would prefer a different metaphor than the, a World War II scale climate mobilization. They're talking out of the English context where everything was, was changed um, yeah. in, in Great Britain during World War II. I would rather say um, a civil rights movement style um, mobilization, you know, an mm. all hands on deck mobilization. Uh, well, and then we're in the, the US with the Green New Deal. That too is a metaphor which comes directly out of, uh, um, you know, re recovering from the realities of war. Yeah. And, and of course, the, the, the New Deal out that brought the US out of the Depression was in, enabled by the fighting in the Second World War. So we, we got to work with our metaphors, but there's no, no doubt that we've got to have an all hands on deck mobilization. And the third demand of Extinction Rebellion Movement is participatory democracy. And mm. that means economic democracy as, we're, as well. So, you know, I think those are three good goals. Um, whatever, uh, whatever actions that we uh, are able to embrace will not be enough. And so the journey, and here's again where gospel wisdom, the journey of repentance isn't one and done. That's another way in which that trope has gotten trivialized in, in church altar calls um, and magical conversions. The journey of repentance is a lifelong journey. It's yeah. continuing to deepen how we change from what the Apostle Paul called the old way of life and embrace uh, a redemptive, resilient and renewing way of life it's a it's a lifelong struggle and it's got it's got to touch everything that we do so um let's let's march um and let's change our consumer habits but let's also change how we look at the world we here in uh in our shop we we talk a lot about watershed uh consciousness as um as a really important frame for re-inhabiting the bioregions uh, in which we dwell. So there's consciousness change, there's habituary change, um, <clears throat> there's certainly spiritual transformation that, that has to happen. And, and the good news for both um, stuck Christians and paralyzed secular folks is that we've got an ancient story that... Uh, that understands our dilemma, that animates hope, uh, mm. and that instructs us to pay attention to the voice of God through the creation and the voice of God through the poor. It is mm. through those um, animating forces that we will um, figure out how to um, redeem this terrible time. It will not be from the top down. It will not be from a managerial mentality. Uh, yeah, so, well. right, it's the, it's, the, it's the worst of times, but it's the best of times for radical change. Mm. The, the Extinction Rebellion um, here in my town uh, recently gathered to, to write songs for uh, marches and all the rest. And um, the songs they were drawing on, Chad, uh, struck me. They, um, they will know us by our love. And um, I just found that so striking, like uh, that the, the resources of the church were being 
used by the movement um, and the, the church is asleep to the power that is actually there. I, I'm, I'm so grateful, Chad, for the way that um, you continue to not just um, talk and write about this, but model this. Um, I, I love you and Elaine deeply. Um, you inspire me. I'm, uh, it, it's, it's kind of your fault that I'm me. Like it, it's um, your influence on, on so many of us. Uh, I'm really thankful for um, the permission you've given us to follow those intuitions that, that we had. So thank you. And thanks for this time. It's been, it's been great. You can come back anytime, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity to talk with you, Jared, and, and to catch up a little bit. And um, my prayer is that uh, all of your listeners will um, remain in conversation with you and with each other and with your dog uh, yeah, to figure out how we get through this. Archie, I don't know if you can see Archie, but he's been sitting here the whole time. And uh, I think that uh, was his amen. That's, that's a blue healer's amen. That's awesome. That's right. <laughs> All right. Much love to you, Jared. Love you, bro. Take care. Right. Peace. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.